So today, we are concluding a series that we started many weeks ago in the letter of 1 Peter. Peter originally wrote this letter as a circular message to churches that were scattered about what is modern Turkey, and little did he know that through the power of God's own spirit, his words were actually addressed to Christians of all times and places, including us today. Now, as Peter draws to the end of his letter, he offers this climactic warning in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What a gripping, startling image. This dark, elusive force, the devil himself, is prowling about like a ravenous animal looking for someone to consume. So we need to be alert, Peter says. It's an absorbing image, but... This verse presents us with some challenges. All our popular images of the devil today are nearly always an extreme of one form or another. So on the one hand, there are fewer and fewer people in our culture who are believing in God, much less the devil. So if you told someone there's a lion prowling about wanting to eat them up as a way of trying to witness to someone, they'd probably recommend some form of therapy and medication, right? On this extreme, the devil is pictured as a cartoon-like character with horns and a pitchfork, and he's nothing to be taken seriously. On the other hand, in the opposite direction, some read this and develop a kind of spiritual paranoia. The devil becomes to blame for everything. A bad day, all your disappointments in life, a friend's or a spouse's personality quirks that you don't appreciate, and on and on and on. Years ago, I, I was on a church youth group trip, and I was talking to a high school guy about his and his girlfriend's relationship. I knew both of them. Both of them were in the youth group that I was kind of leading, and I was a little bit concerned about their level of physical intimacy, judging by what I was noticing. So I asked him just to check in, how are you guys doing? And he said, well, the the devil keeps trying to get us. And I said, well, you can't always blame the devil when you don't control yourself. Sometimes it's on you. And he, you know, didn't want to take that. He would rather blame the devil. And we would oftentimes. Now, these are the two extremes our culture is prone to. We ignore the devil altogether or we give him the wrong kind of attention. How did the early Christians understand this? Those who were the first to listen to Peter's letter. Now, this, I think, is fascinating to think about because these Christians knew that back in Rome, at the Colosseum, lions were being released on their Christian brothers and sisters. Think about this. Literally, lions were being released to devour their Christian brothers and sisters as a form of public entertainment for the masses. But this was actually never only about killing Christians. That's not all it was about. What the powers that be really wanted to accomplish wasn't to make martyrs of Christians, people you know, dying courageously for a good cause. What they really wanted to make was apostates. 
They wanted to strike such fear in the public, especially other Christians, that those other Christians would say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want it. Don't sign me up for that. So the lions were not actually just tools for killing. They were a fear tactic used to scare people away from their devotion to God. Listen to the verse again with that in mind. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. What Peter seems to be saying is behind any effort to get Christians to renounce their faith or to loosen their devotion to Christ, behind this is our ancient enemy, the devil. He wants to devour your singular devotion to God. He wants to confuse you and divide you. And you need to resist him. You need to remain strong in your faith. Now, as Peter says this, there's a particular essential part of the Christian faith he identifies that's especially difficult to remain strong in. He mentions it several times in our passage. And this essential part of the faith is its humility. It's humility. What some might call weakness or lowliness. Christianity, you know, it's not a triumphalist faith. We have no expectations that we will get our reward in life here in the present. Or that everything is even going to work out just the way we want it. In fact, we know that oftentimes life is not going to go as we wish. Sometimes it'll be downright unfair and unjust. Other times, it'll be disappointing and it'll leave us longing. But despite all of this, even though we're not triumphalist, neither are Christians pessimists. Because we still have great hope in God. We believe God will make all things right in the end. And if we've lived for Him, but we've experienced injustice and unfairness, God will vindicate us in the end. He will show injustice and unfairness up to be what it is. Also, as we serve Him and serve the world in the present, God will give us small foretastes of what's to come. Now this quality of the Christian attitude, of not being triumphalist nor being a pessimist, you can call it humility. And this is a distinctly Christian trait. In the ancient world, humility meant being low to the ground. It, it meant having little worth or dignity. It was never used as a compliment to someone. That's a humble person. Never would that be a compliment. But Jesus introduced a new image of humility in which a person who was great, who could, could in devotion to God and through faith, make themselves low as a way of lifting others up. In other words, someone who is far above the ground, could make themselves close to the ground in order to bring up others who were close to the ground. Now, an essential part of being a Christian is this same attitude, this same humility. Now, notice this is not about thinking little of yourself 
as if you don't have value. In fact, humility is the very opposite of this. It's believing that you have the highest value before God. You're loved by Him. You are chosen, adopted as His own child. You're bought and forgiven by His own blood. You have to believe these things to exercise genuine humility. Because if you believe you're already worthless and low to the ground, you, you can't go any lower. How do you actually humble yourself if you're already humble, low to the ground? That's not humility. So you, what you have to do is believe these things about how God sees you. That He has lifted you up. That He's made you more than you are. And then you can lower yourself and become a servant to the world and others in faith that God is going to honor you. He's going to lift you back up. That's humility. You've been lifted up, but you make yourself lowly again in faith that God one day is going to lift you up again. Now, why is this such an essential part of being a Christian? And what does this have to do with the devil who's prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Here's where this comes together. If the devil can get you to say, being a Christian shouldn't be this difficult. Or get you to say something like this, God wouldn't want me to struggle like this. If he can get you to deny the humbling aspects of the faith, God doesn't want me to have to suffer. If he can get you to deny these humiliating, humbling aspects of the faith, then the devil can pull you away, and little by little, he can pull apart your faith. He can dismantle it. You might never deny aspects of the faith like believing in Jesus. But your, faith, your, your life will look very little like Jesus, and the devil will be plenty happy with that. He will have done his job. You see, the devil's not concerned about your doctrine, whether you believe every jot and tittle of what Christianity has taught. What the devil wants to do is to get your faith to be discredited, to where it looks nothing like Jesus, the one whom you claim to follow. So actually, the way that we resist the devil and stand strong in the faith is by following Jesus in his own humility. This is what Peter lays out for us in this passage. Now, before we get to that, it's important to say this. Humility is impossible for us to embody on our own strength. It's impossible for us to embody in our own strength. We'll twist it in all sorts of ways along the way. We'll become self-deprecating and we deny our gifts and we exercise some false humility. Some of us will think we need to become the world's doormat and others will develop this woe-is-me attitude. And we'll think that's humility. The only way to learn and to maintain it is by following Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Now this passage... And 1 Peter 5 shows us two areas of life where we do this. And so for the last few minutes, I want us to look at how we follow Jesus' humility. One, when we're in power. When we have influence. And two, when we're weak. At the opposite end of the spectrum, when we're weak. So first, 
How do we follow Jesus' humility when we have power? Now, there are groups of people who have taken the idea that Jesus' humility combined with other qualities of Christianity, so say, for instance, Christianity's promotion of peace and kindness, that they've taken these, this combination of character traits of Christianity to say that the church should then be a model of democracy, where everyone is equal in power and no one has authority over anyone else. That's not the direction that Jesus or the other writers of the scriptures go with this. So in this passage, Peter addresses elders, which can also mean pastors, because they have a measure of authority in the church. Similar to the way that if you were writing a business or something or um, you wanted to write the government, you're going to write those that, you know, have some power and can exercise some authority. The problem is not with authority or power in themselves. These things are never the, the, the problem in themselves. The Bible never suggests that these are inherently bad things. The problem is how they're used, abused. So in the first few verses, Peter is essentially reminding the leaders who are over these churches of what Jesus said about leadership. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over others and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You know, these Christians were surrounded by a culture that was built on power and authority, even more so than our own culture. People were often paying bribes and doing dirty work to slither their way into levels of power so they could become the ones who told others what to do. And power was always preserved by the threat of death if you didn't submit to it. The people who were in charge, it made it pretty easy for them to stay in charge. The people who were not, it made it pretty easy to keep them out of power. It's amazing to think that the man who's writing this letter, Peter, wasn't always opposed to the use of such forceful power. Do you remember the time that Peter took out a sword to protect Jesus? Do you remember this? And he cut off the man's ear? You have to wonder if Peter actually just narrowly missed his target. He missed his head and hit his ear instead. Here, Peter has completely changed his tone. He identifies himself as a co-pastor. Peter is an apostle. He has all sorts of authority that he could leverage with these people. But instead of leveraging authority in this uh, I'm over you kind of way, he says, as a fellow elder pastor with you. But then he also identifies himself as a witness to the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. Peter is telling these leaders, having seen the sufferings of Christ, Following Jesus requires a different way of leadership than you've ever imagined. A different way of using authority. So he's telling them, do this as God would have you. Not domineering, but being examples of the faith. Leaders are supposed to be on the front lines of submission to Jesus. This is a pastor's job. To be on the very front lines of following Jesus in his humility in his submission to the way of God. 
so that others can look on and say, okay, I see things I can follow there, emulate. This is an essential part of what makes a leader a leader, that they provide an example to follow. They set a tone in which the entire church can learn to exercise humility toward one another. So this is why Peter moves from leaders, don't be domineering, be an example to those among you, to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. The leaders are to set a tone that everyone can then follow in that. Now this means that pastors shouldn't be as strange a creatures as we often are. We shouldn't be impossible to identify with, and our job shouldn't be viewed as unusual as it typically is. Can any Who could write a pastor's job description? What do you think a pastor does? Instead, the church should become a model place where you can see Christian humility acted out in faithful, sacrificial leadership. A kind of leadership that can go that, that can then move out into the real world. This is the way the world is supposed to be, isn't it? That it can then move out into the world and it can take that leadership with it. This is the kind of leadership God calls all of us to exercise, whether we're in business, a classroom, or in our own homes. A kind of faithful, sacrificial leadership. Now It's false humility that leads a person to say, I have no power or authority. That's false humility. Because every person here has a certain amount of power to influence us as a body. Katie just walked this way, and all your eyes went that way, didn't you? That's power and influence. She's subverting the leadership, isn't she? I'm just kidding. I can only say that while she's out right now. Every person here has a certain amount of power to influence, to leverage as in our congregation. And you have this ability in your own home, in your workplace, whether it's for good or ill. The real question for all of us is, how do I exercise the power and influence I have? Do I do it in the way of Jesus, humbling myself and leading for the good of others? Or do I use underhanded tactics of manipulation and fear to get what I want? This is how our enemy, the devil, works. You see, the devil is a pragmatist. Whatever it takes to get his way, he will do that. He'll take that path. But Christians are called to stay on the humble way of Christ, trusting that God will one day establish us. And even if we're done wrongly, God will be faithful to us. So this is one way we resist the devil. We follow Jesus' humility when we have power. But Peter also addresses an opposite scenario. We also follow Jesus' humility when we're weak. Listen to verses 6 and 7 again. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Peter says, that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How did Jesus do this? When was Jesus weak? Well, on the night before His death, He went to a garden and He wept and He begged God to deliver Him it was possible. Is this not humility? 
weakness. In his darkest moment, Jesus cried out in physical and emotional anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that not humility? Weakness? In a way, you would think it's self-explanatory. Of course, trust in God when you're weak. But the way that weakness works in us, two thoughts usually come to mind first. The first thought is, we need to try to fix it. We can't talk to God about it if we haven't tried to deal with it ourselves. So we scramble to find a solution to whatever problem we have. We should be able to fix it. And most of the time, we actually find some solution, as short-term as it may be. We find some working solution for this time. But then when we aren't able to fix something, we end up becoming so ashamed that we can't imagine ourselves worthy enough for God's attention. We're ashamed because we didn't go to God first, because we didn't trust Him. Or it's just hard for us to imagine ourselves lovable in God's sight. Now, sometimes we're even tempted to think that this is humility not thinking ourselves worthy enough for God's attention. But actually, it's more self-pity. At the worst, it's self-hatred. And the gospel of Jesus steps into this and says, I love you. Will you not believe this? You can't fix it. I bore your sin, and I want to bear your weakness too. I don't want to be done just with your sin. I want to go all the way to all your anxieties, all your fears, all your weakness, and I want them all. Put them all on me. Won't you do it? I love you. Will you not cast them all on me? I want to bear them. Throw it all on me. Now the devil hates it when we humble ourselves like this. He hates it when we abandon ourselves to God and trust in His love. The devil is much happier when we are consumed with our efforts at independence, when he can devour us with our own anxiety and self-hatred. The devil wins. But humility leaves him with no ammunition, no fear tactic to manipulate us with. Because in humility, we know our only hope is in God. Devil, do your worst. God is all I have. Jesus leads us in how to exercise humility both in power and in weakness. We do it humbly. We exercise uh, power with love. And then in weakness, we throw it all on God. Now, you know, Pause briefly. Now, suffering and experiencing the brokenness of life is a particular way in which we're humbled, where we are made weak. And Peter assumes that this happens to all of us. In fact, that for many of us, it's a present reality. We're experiencing weakness. We're struggling with either momentary or long-term issues in our lives right now. And he assumes that our faith only sharpens these struggles. It only makes it harder in one sense. 
Because following Jesus calls us to a humble, patient hope. We can't resort to a pessimism. We're called on to believe God is going to make this right. This isn't going to last forever. He's going to establish me. He's going to exalt me. So God will not allow us to resort to pessimism. So what are you to do? Well, you're to at least to know and believe this. God has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Did you hear this as Leah read? God has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. All of us. And in time, He's going to restore you fully to be who you may, He made you to be. He's going to confirm you, strengthen, and make you fully established in Him. One day, the winds of life aren't going to blow you back and forth anymore. But until then, you must resist the devil and all his hollow attempts to scare you and to diminish your hope. Because God going to fulfill His promises in you. Christ, who humbled Himself to the lowest point and then was raised up to the highest, is going to raise you with Him. And you will be fully established in Him. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.